views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Are these the equations on which you base your theory, Professor? Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? To me, that's the most fascinating thing in the world. You'll probably think it's very dull. On the contrary, I find it very interesting. Very interesting. He's being nice to me, isn't he? Well, you don't have to wade through that stuff just to make me feel good. Oh, I, 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 I really do want to read it. Well, now, just one second, Uncle Martin. He is wrong about Mars. Now, you tell me what is so brilliant about being wrong. Tim, sometimes we have to be wrong before we can be right. It was because Columbus was wrong that he discovered this continent. He thought he was sailing to India. If you're going to call Jennings a fraud, you've got to call Columbus a fraud, too. I refuse to break the spirit of a scientific genius just to pamper my own personal vanity. Well, there goes my exclusive. Well, that's the way the planet plummets. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 2nd. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show this morning on a very hot August the second. I uh, hear the I uh, hear the humidex is supposed to go up into the mid forties today, with the actual temperature being in the mid thirties. So uh, we're talking uh, global meltdown today, folks. This is global warming. This is what it's going to feel like all the time. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, a lot of topics today. It's going to be a bit of a nod show. I had so many subjects that have built up over the past few months that I never got to that I'm sort of playing catch up with today, and. Uh, uh, among them will be a little more follow-up on uh, basically things we've done before, but some follow-ups on them and what's happened since my previous commentaries, uh, including global warming and uh, things that were said about marijuana smoking, photo radar, and speed limits. And if we get to them, we'll talk a little bit about World War III and the monarchy again, which uh, I saw come up in some of the media uh, based on some of the things that I was talking about earlier in the show. But first of all, the number you want to call if you want to get through and discuss any of this, these issues or any other issues on your mind that we've discussed on the show is 519-661-3600. And the phone will be answered by Ira Timothy, our producer and operator, and he'll talk to you there and get you on. We also have another th- something new. I mentioned it very briefly last week, a new way of getting a, a hold of us, and that is, of course, through email. And the email address is just right at chrw or sorry just right chrw at gmail.com so if you want to get a hold of us you can talk about you know comment on anything you can comment on any show or topic uh, whether it's the current one one you heard on, in the past you can suggest topics um, ask questions offer praise offer criticism i can't promise to deal with every email individually uh, i can only promise that all of them will be read and because of the nature of the show being weekly, we can't do everything all the time. We will eventually get them. I'll pick a show, and I'll pick the emails that I think, you know, hit some of the points that perhaps require responses and deal with them as we go. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing this now for, oh, 
we're going into our fourth month now. This is, uh, we actually finished our first quarter year, which is amazing. It's, this is sort of a thing I never thought I would do. I'm certainly not a DJ, never planned to be one as such. When I was offered this uh, opportunity back in April, I didn't really know how the show would shape out, how it was going to evolve. You know, it was sort of like uh, being tossed into a pool and learning how to swim or sink as you go. <laughs> right, Ira? That's what it's like, live radio. That's another interesting thing about live radio is you don't get a chance to rehearse or do do take two or anything like that. And, of course, you have to be sort of ready on time all every time. And that sort of put a crimp in my lifestyle for the last little while until I got organized enough. And, and as I see the show shaping up, it's partially, you know, it's a two-way street, really. It's um, the direction that I want to push things in. And, and of course, limited by uh, the format of the show, the timing of the show, the way, the theme of the show. When, when of course, when I started this back in April, we had just finished doing here on CHRW. Uh, I'd been a guest regularly on uh, Jim Chapman's Left, Right, and Center. And... Uh, it was the very week after that that I started doing this show on April 19, and I called it Just Right, uh, which has more meaning to it than you might think on the surface, but it certainly was a natural evolution from having been identified as the right component uh, on Jim Chapman's show Left, Right, and Center, which aired for many years, about 10 years, both on CJBK and here on CHRW. Interesting, though, isn't it? You ever think about it? There's no, there's no center wing. There's just a left wing and a right wing in politics, but no center wing. There is in hockey, but not in, not in politics. Now, also, the, you know, the theme of uh, not right wing, just right, uh, that I open the show up with all the time. I have already, in the past, given sort of two uh, primers on what I think the difference is between left wing and right wing. Not going to do that today, but we'll do it again probably in September when I intend to go uh, and uh, deal with a lot of other issues such as political definitions, the words we use every day to define our environment. And that kind of is a little bit what I want to talk about right now, sort of what to expect from the show and how the show will shape up. For me, uh, knowing what is right is not about knowing what is right, but rather by knowing how one discovers what is right. It is a process and not an end. Uh, you know, being right is not about staking out a position and holding it at any cost. I've changed my mind many times over issues, uh, particularly when facts and, uh, you know, circumstances <laughs> illustrate to me that what I believed before was not the way things actually worked. So what I decided to do with the show, of course, we'd always been commenting on political issues in the past, and it's something I've done quite a bit. This isn't the only show uh, where I get to voice my opinions in a broadcast market. I've done hundreds of radio shows and television shows uh, all around the province. Uh, just last week I was on the CTS network um, on a show called On the Line. It's hosted by Christine Williams. I'm pretty much a regular there. I go at least uh, oh, once every three or four weeks. And that's the same network that, uh, of course, Michael Corrin is on. Michael has me on the show every now and then, but much less frequently than Christine does. And I get to talk about very much the same things we talk about here and that we talked about on Left, Right, and Center. In fact, that show that they do on CTS, uh, the last time I was on, it was aired here in London uh, on uh, this past Monday, I think. But it's very much the format of the old Left, Right, and Center. There's three people on the show, and we talk about issues as they're presented to us through newspaper articles and things like that, which is a little bit about what this show, Just Right, 
is uh, sort of evolving into. It's it's certainly a show with a common theme of freedom. Freedom, uh, certainly the thing that I'm into. That's why I talk. That's why I'm in the public eye. In any case, people know I'm involved with the Freedom Party of Ontario. Not only involved with, but I'm one of the founding members. And uh, you know. For a show like this, I thought I should really incorporate issues of philosophy, uh, politics, entertainment, art, culture, news, and editorial opinion, generally all relating to public forums in which you know, ideas are presented and debated and defended and critiqued. For me, uh, you know, when I look at the whole radio scene and the, the whole media scene, you know, I think there's a great need out there. Uh, I, I'm, what I'm trying to do here a bit, apart from, uh, you know, little bit of uh, self-indulgence, I guess, if you want to call it that. But for me, the show is about uh, filling a philosophical need and a social necessity. I, I, you know, I learned very slowly. I was, gee, I was almost 30 years old before I woke up to politics, even though I'd been voting up until then. And it struck me after uh, being a candidate. I've been a candidate federally, municipally, and provincially. Haven't been recently, but I did in the 80s and 90s. And it struck me that a defense of individual freedom is basically a necessity. Very few people really understand it to its core. And most people in the political field aren't worried about freedom. They're worried about their personal interests and hoping they can use the political system to uh, you know, benefit them somehow. But because freedom benefits everyone equally and no one in particular... It's not on the agenda of most political parties, other than, of course, Freedom Party. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if you look at uh, the way most political parties are, they really don't put freedom first. They put benefits first, and that's you see it glaringly with every election. We see a federal election on the horizon. We see the provincial election. And what are they doing? They're promising to give us all kinds of money for all these uh, government programs, which, of course, comes out of your pocket. Every promise that that is made to you is a promise to tax you at the same rate. It's uh, it's funny, we wouldn't allow a used, sales car, or a used car salesman rather uh, to sell us things, sell us a car without telling the price, telling us the conditions, but that's how we accept political products. We go out there and we buy the product and then we're informed of the price years and years later. I think too, over time uh, with Just Right, the show, you'll find that there's sort of a, a continuum. A, it's almost a record. You can't do anything today in broadcast or anything you do online. This show is also online, by the way. You, if you go to the website, chrwradio.com, and you'll see uh, all the shows that the, that the station has here, and they are archived, and you can they're kept up for a week, so you can listen to this show online for a week, which is another reason, by the way, um, that I think email would be another way for people to get a hold of us. Uh, I know a lot of people can't listen at this particular hour for because they work, they have other concerns, and many of them I know from those who contact me listen to the show uh, over the Internet when they download the show from chrwradio.com. Um, of course, this is volunteer radio. Just in case you're wondering, uh, I don't get paid for this. It's a labor of love in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the people here are here for that reason on their shows. It is, of course, live. And another thing I should say about the show just generally is that uh, it's a weekly show, okay? It's not daily. And due to that nature, the nature of that situation, and also due to my own nature, I, I don't want Just Right to be a instant reaction to what happened five minutes ago kind of show. <laughs> because usually that's when the most misinformation and speculation is just running rampant. You really, uh, 
you know, I, I, I clip newspapers, and I clip them late, I, honestly, to tell you. Um, I, uh, so when I get to clip, uh, say, four weeks' worth of newspapers, and then you see what was a hot item on Monday is almost a non-issue by Wednesday, and then you realize you just get a different perspective of the news. And uh, so I think uh, I'd like the show to be a little bit more about, you know, considered opinion making. I usually prepare the show here for Thursday on the Tuesday previous. That's uh, usually when I get a chance to do it. Sometimes I'm babysitting that day, and that's a great time for me to also uh, work on my notes, decide what I'm going to do, pick the clips that you hear on the show from time to time, which I think... Uh, are from uh, various television shows. I don't know if you recognize the one that started today's show. Uh, that was a clip, believe it or not, from My Favorite Martian. Can you imagine that show? That was a, such a silly, uh, stupid show in so many ways, but often they just hit right on critical morals, and it was a very good teaching show in that way. And I think that's one of the things that keeps shows like that popular. Uh, I don't read newspapers on a daily basis or sometimes not even on a timely basis. I recycle, uh, literally. I get all my copies of the London Free Press, the National Post, The Economist, and almost any other publication I might uh, refer to from time to time from other other subscribers who give them to me when they're through with them. I've been doing this uh, for years uh, simply because, you know, I'm in no particular hurry because, uh, you know, Usually the hundreds of radio shows and talk shows that I've been over, on over the years is that I've learned that uh, really no news is new news. Only the actors change, but the plays basically remain the same. Don't even suggest uh, changing the script. History repeats itself because everyone continues to read from the same script over and over again. And yet all progress was created by those individuals and very seldom groups who departed from the old script. You know, real news is a very uh, rare event. So that's basically, I don't know how the show is going to shape up in the future. We have guests sometimes. Sometimes we do many subjects within a single show. Sometimes we do a single subject. But once again, if you want to contact us, the email now is justrightchrw at gmail.com. And of course, the open line number during the hour that we're on live is 519-661- 3600. Now, just before we go to this first little break, one little quick comment on something I just caught in the paper. Oh, this was yesterday. Talk about, holy cow, I'm really up to date then. I just lied about everything I just said. I actually have yesterday's article here uh, from the front page. I just couldn't resist um, Tom Gosnell here, of course, who also appeared with me, by the way, many times on uh, Left, Right, and Center on CHRW when he sat in for Jim Chapman or sometimes was the guest himself. But uh, he's here again lashing out, it says, according to Joe Belanger's story on the front page yesterday, complaining about whining, the, the whining socialist cabal in City Hall who's apparently keeping back uh, uh, development there. And, of course, uh, it's funny when you use a word like socialism or call somebody a socialist, the first reaction that the, uh, the socialists give you is that you're name-calling. You know? Don't call me that. You know, if somebody called, called me a capitalist, I'd say thank you. Aren't they proud of what they believe in? Isn't that what you're supposed to be? Well, if you think socialism is good, you shouldn't regard it as a bad word. But without going into the details, there was just one, uh, I don't even want to talk about the issue itself, but there was one um, paragraph here in the article that, to me, I will take on face value, whether it's accurate or not, but that's all I can judge. And that's part of, you know, being right and being wrong. You can't 
always try to second-guess yourself and worry about not having accurate information from time to time. You can have total confidence if you know how to arrive at a conclusion based on certain information, if you also have the willingness to amend your position when new information comes to your attention. And it doesn't invalidate anything you may have said before, as long as you set up the parameters. But here's the statement from the paper. Council is divided into two camps on growth. One that says growth should be managed, and the other that says it should be market-driven. Well, basically, if I'm going to take that as a definition, just raw, never mind the, the literal issues or what really might be going on in the background, that does mean that there is a socialist camp and a free market or capitalist camp, relatively speaking. Uh, the one that says growth should be managed has to be the socialist camp, because that's what socialists believe in, quote, managing uh, the marketplace, which means using laws and regulations and essentially the use of force in the marketplace instead of allowing what we call market forces, which is really about choices and things of that nature. So just on a basis of definition, I thought it was kind of kind of funny if you're a socialist and, and acting like one, don't worry about the label, you know, roll with it. That's it for now. Now, just before, I just want, we're heading right now into a brief little break, and coming up right now in this clip is also sort of a an American view by Dr. Walter Williams on, uh, it almost strikes a bit of what the theme of the show is about, how we lose our freedoms bit by bit. It's, it's a universal concept. Uh, you know, a lot of the clips I use on the show here, by the way, are not just Canadian. I've used British and I've used uh, American as well. I see th that is all a commonwealth. We all have a common culture in that sense and background. This is American, of course. And uh, on the other side of this, we'll get back to some other follow-ups on global warming and such. But first, uh, this message, and then on the other side of this, we'll get into the second topic. In the name of other ideals such as equality of income, race and sex balance, orderly markets, consumer protection, energy conservation, environmentalism, just name a few, we have abandoned many personal freedoms. As a result of widespread control by government in order to achieve these so-called higher objectives, you and I have been subordinated to the point where considerations of personal freedom are but secondary and tertiary matters. That is, we have been subordinated to the point where the issues of personal freedom are treated as if they are dirt. Let me give you an example of that because you might think I'm being too extreme with this. Suppose that as I own myself, I belong to Walter Williams. Suppose I tell the politicians or suppose I tell Congress, I own myself, I am a free individual and I will take care of my own retirement, I don't want you to force me into your government retirement program. Social Security. They will laugh in my face. They will treat that consideration of personal liberty as dirt. Now the ultimate end, ladies and gentlemen, to this process is totalitarianism. Now keep in mind, I am not saying that we are a totalitarian nation yet. But if you ask the question, which way are we headed 
tiny steps at a time, are we headed towards more liberty or towards more totalitarianism? The unambiguous answer would have to be towards more totalitarianism. And keep in mind that even if you take tiny steps towards some goal, sooner or later you're going to reach that goal. Or maybe it's better described by an eminent philosopher named David Hume. And he said, it's seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. It's always lost bit by bit. In the interview you won't see, they told us, global warming's melting Canada and we could all die. These kids were fearful too. Floods will happen and we won't be able to breathe. And if we can't breathe, we'll probably go extinct. I think it's tragic that someone has frightened these kids. But I keep hearing how global warming is causing bad weather. We looked very closely at hurricanes, at tornadoes, at hail, at storminess. None of those things are increasing. They are not getting worse. Better to be safe than sorry. Maybe we are warming the atmosphere. At what cost are you sorry? A trillion dollars? Is a trillion do dollars sorry enough? Well, that works for me. A trillion dollars ought to do, just about do it, don't you think? Should just be about right. Uh, welcome back to the show. 519-661-3600 if you want to call in. And just write chrw at gmail.com if you'd like to email us. You know, I had no idea two weeks ago on July 19th uh, when I actually covered uh, Tom Harris uh, and uh, a debate he had in the free press with Elizabeth May. And, uh, but I, I did my own commentary two weeks ago today, and I had no idea on that day that, in fact, the London Free Press was doing the same thing on the very two subjects that I had picked on that day. And honest to God, folks, I hadn't seen the Free Press yet. Like I tell you, most of the time I uh, read the paper late. And I'm glad I didn't see the paper that day because it probably would have really distracted me. I was really disappointed by what I saw. And it gives you some idea of why I'm doing this and why I get so frustrated when I read the newspapers and the way people think about issues. This is not about the issue itself now. This is more about how people think about it and how they arrive at their conclusions. In this first case about uh, global warming. Now Tom Harris was my guest here on the show on Just Right on back on May 17th. He's, he's one of the many uh, people that works with uh, what's called the Natural Resources Stewardship Project. And, and basically they put out scientific papers and statements and things on global warming. And, and there's a lot of people involved with the group. He's just one of, of many. But what was interesting is back on, uh, what's the date here now? July 19th, the day I was doing a show. Uh, the Free Press was running uh, a sort of a sampling of, uh, they picked six letters to the editor. Now, I, I, I say the Free Press because these letters are actually, some of them were from Calgary and elsewhere, so I guess maybe it's really the Sun, because of course the Sun is now publishing the Free Press. But uh, of the six people that they picked to, to, for their comments on what they thought about both Elizabeth May and Tom Harris, I was just astounded, and I'll tell you why. For example... Um, first letter here from a fellow here in London, 
M.A. Helstein note, he says, there's no question, quote, Tom Harris's contention that there is vigorous debate among scientists regarding carbon dioxide emission effects is disingenuous. There is an effort by climate change skeptics to convince the public that there is scientific debate on climate change when in fact there is little within peer-reviewed science. Many of the same scientists who are publicly questioning climate change now were hired by tobacco industries years ago to publicly question whether or not tobacco was harmful. Many of them have not been published in 10 or more years. I'm thinking, well, what's that got to do with anything? I mean, it's a complete non sequitur. And he doesn't name any of the scientists. Is, was Tom one of these guys? I don't. He never said anything about that. Again, here's someone who... Uh, who does the opposite. He's picking on uh, Elizabeth May, and I've done that many times too, but pick on her for the right reasons, not for this reason, for heaven's sakes, as Lauren Hamilton of Etobicoke says, and the headline reads, Discredited Source. Green Party leader Elizabeth May brings us more of her leftist twaddle on climate change and cites a report by Britain's Sir Nicholas Stern, who is not a climatologist or a scientist, but rather an economist. Okay, so if you're an economist, you're not allowed to talk about global warming. God, I'm starting to think, where does that leave me? And then here's another one, Ridiculous Notion by Tim Scott in Barrie. Here's one simple reason why Elizabeth May's idea is a horrible one. Imagine any government implementing a new tax and cutting other taxes to offset it. Ridiculous. Well, that's... That's probably the kindest comment I heard out of the six, because he just this is just basically cynicism talking. But again, it's more emotion than it is fact. Another one uh, titled A Myopic View by uh, D.W. McKenzie in Cherry Valley. Tom Harris's group does not reveal where it gets its funding. Figures don't lie, but liars figure. Well, aren't facts still facts? Does it matter who pays you to, to find them? Aren't they reviewed and criticized by everyone publicly? You don't, you don't determine the result of a science by who paid the person to do it. Who are you going to blame for me? I just told you now I'm doing this for free. So how I, I agree with a lot of these people. So am I being paid too? Is there some secret source of money? I wish it was. Tell me where the account is because I want to open it right now. But uh, here's another one. Feeling a little lonely, Roger Gagne in Calgary, who says that uh, Tom Harris is not a scientist but a mechanical engineer. He's happy to stand in defiance of the overwhelming majority of climate scientists who agree that global warming is unequivocally related to greenhouse gas emissions and mostly from human sources. Thanks to research grants from ExxonMobil, there's still a couple of dozen scientists who agree with Tom, so he needn't be too lonely. At least he could organize a barbecue. Uh Okay, maybe a barbecue under the hot sun today. Another one, Feeling Outnumbered by Robert Coulter in St. Albert, Alberta. Yeah, right, Tom. More than 2,000 scientists worldwide are wrong, and you, a hired gun for the oil and gas industry, are right. Why does that not surprise me? End quote. So there's your sampling of the type of thinking. Not a single idea in there. And with the exception of Tim Scott's pure expression of cynicism, you know, all of them were ad hominem attacks on the messengers. They were attacking the messenger and not paying attention to the message at all. I, you know, I'm surprised that they didn't pick on their skin color or heritage while they were at it. Not one idea or concept was mentioned in any of their criticisms, 
And when I read them, and this may be unfair to some of them, I know that letters to the editor are edited, but if that's the best they could pick out of these letters, I mean, these are people who do, aren't thinking independently. They're just social metaphysicians, as they say. You know, they, they get their ideas totally from the people around them, and they think that an idea's validity is, is determined by the, its number of adherents. You know, obviously they don't know the history of Albert Einstein, who was totally derided by the scientific community until he said, no, this is the way it is. It only takes one guy to prove me wrong. You don't have to gang up on him. So, you know, there just seems to be some contempt for objectivity and knowledge. It's very evident. And uh, you read this stuff and you can tell, and I'm picking on people on both sides here, not just the ones that picked on Tom, but you can, you can hear it. They've made up their minds. They've got their belief systems in place. And, you know, even worse, and this is the worst part, each of them is completely wrong, both in relationship to uh, the so-called facts they raise and to the validity of the method by which they arrive at their conclusions. You know, if I were publishing a newspaper, I wouldn't have published those those letters. Not if you're out to inform people, that's for sure. I think the letters were all mean-spirited, each and every one. No facts, no ideas, just some sort of religious disagreement. And consensus is not science, okay? Uh, for example, it's funny, there's, here's one guy who says... Uh, Tom was not a scientist but a mechanical engineer. Well, so was one of these critics, the first guy I read, who agreed with him. So does that cancel out his opinion? Because he's an engineer, too. And he's, he's disagreeing with Tom. So is he qualified to have an opinion? You know, and that each of these writers relies on that mythical 2,000 scientists agree argument is, is a sign of just they're not even thinking. They haven't even done any research. First of all, way more than 2,000 scientists signed the Oregon Accord against Kyoto which I've referred to many times on this show, including clips from 2020's John Stossel indicating the same and many other sources. And uh, even more so, Tom Harris himself, when he was on this show, I asked him about that very statistic. I said, you know, uh, 17,000 uh, scientists signed the Oregon Accord, and he corrected me. He, he said, no, it wasn't 17, over 17,000 so signed, that is true, but he said only eight to 9,000 of them were bona fide scientists. So, even if you take that figure, eight to 9,000, that outnumbers the 2,000 figure that the letter writers are all using. I mean, again, don't get me wrong here. This is not a valid argument. I myself am not, not saying that because there's 9,000 on Tom's side that he's right and 2,000 on the other. That's not the point here. What I'm pointing out is that the whole debate is irrelevant on that point. And moreover, if you if you even watch an inconvenient truth, uh, Al Gore's propaganda piece, he doesn't even his figure's not even in the thousand. It's only around nine hundred. He talks about nine hundred papers. So, just again, part of my frustration on an issue like that: like, who do you have to be to be knowledgeable to discuss the issue? You don't have to be anyone. You just have to know a little bit about science uh, principles. Uh, look and look and see. Uh, you know, there's some validity to looking at other people's opinions. And science is never, by the way, settled, ever, ever. And just because new ideas come along that replace the old ones, it doesn't always invalidate the old ones either. It may just, uh, you know, add to them. Now, that was one of the two su uh, subjects that the paper, the London Free Press, had on the same day I was discussing them. The other one, of course, was uh, with respect to the discovery that Canadians smoke more pot than anyone else does in the world, according to a UN report that was released about uh, two, three weeks ago. And uh, in, again, the Free Press on the 19th, on the same day, same page, right beside the other article, uh, was, uh, was an article by, or a commentary by Lynn Coburn, uh, called Canada Goes to Pot. 
And uh, what she did in this article basically was uh, say, okay, it's not really Canada. You can blame it all on Quebec. She said, you know, thank God for Quebec. She says, uh, quote, now in a spectacular gesture of rapprochement with Canada's other nine provinces and three territories, they've admitted to doing more pot than the rest of us. The UN report stated that Canadians use marijuana four times more than people in any other developed country, but not to worry, a breakdown of the figures supplied by Quebec showed that 32% of their students in grades 7 to 9 have toked up at least once in the past year, leaving BC in the dust at 18%. So overall, marijuana use in Quebec runs about 12% higher than the national average. Either that, I think, uh, uh, or... Uh, people in Quebec are 12% more honest about answering the, the questionnaire than they might be in the rest of Canada. Uh, it, it has to be difficult to collect accurate information about uh, drug use and issues that are either in a gray area legally or completely illegal entirely, because a lot of people aren't going to admit to using things when they know that there is a legal sanction against it. Um, uh, here, Lynn Coburn, she goes on, she says, by the way, the Netherlands, which has decriminalized marijuana use, came in at a trifling 6.1%, a figure which, of course, turned on the Canadian proponents of decriminalization. Well, it didn't turn me on in any way, I can't say, because I'm one of those proponents, and I don't think it's the reason to decriminalize or legalize. It's, it's irrelevant is how many people do it. Is it just? Is it just for a government to take some of its citizens because it disapproves of their behavior, harmful or not, and to punish them by putting them in jail or fining them. If you and I cannot do it as a free citizen, our governments cannot do it. I do not have the right to go next door to my neighbor and tell him, I don't like that booze you're drinking, it's not my brand, or you're drinking too high, uh, uh, you know, too high a proof, or the, your cigarettes smell funny. Now, if, they, if it's coming over into my property, that's another issue. But interestingly, she quotes uh, Eugene Oscapella, an Ottawa lawyer who specializes in drug policy issues, who notes, quote, The criminal law does not prevent people from using marijuana, nor does legalization force people to use it, which is an interesting flip on that particular point of view. Uh, meanwhile, in a sort of a new twist on the whole marijuana issue overseas, um, you know, they got a new prime minister now that uh, Tony Blair stepped down, and Gordon Brown said his government is going to reintroduce stronger penalties for the possession of cannabis, which will reverse a 2004 decision made under Blair's administration to effectively decriminalize the drug. And uh, they say that they're concerned about recent medical research suggesting more links between pot smoking and mental health disorders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, none, none of the research on pot is new, folks. Everything that could be said about pot has been said. It's the most researched drug in history. It's just outrageous. This, what I read today in the papers when they tell you something new about it, I could pick a paper 20, 30 years old that says the very same thing. There's really... Um, not a lot going on there. Interestingly, some drug awareness groups in England are accusing the government of trying to score political points since they know that their cannabis use among their young people is falling. So, you know, it's funny. If I guarantee you, if, if 51% of Canadians still smoke cigarettes, you wouldn't have seen any of the, the no-smoking restaurant laws or any of that stuff because they just wouldn't get uh, voted in. So there's just some follow-up on a couple issues we did a couple weeks ago. And uh, when we return after this next break, we'll be talking a little bit, something new I haven't talked about on the show yet because it kind of caught my attention last week, and that is photo radar in Ontario and highway speed limits. And we'll be back right after this little interlude. This is a poem I wrote in college. Any college students? 
right. It's called graduation day. A light breeze off the river causes the tassel on my graduation cap to blow straight up in the air. Straight up through the clouds, through the sky. Is this some subtle sign from God that from this day on my life is headed straight up? Or is this just really great weed? Driving, I'm driving, you know, and I'm, uh, I don't like to drive anymore because I don't, you people in the, the big cities here, you drive like just gosh darn it too fast. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm living in Edmonton now and everybody's, it's 110 on the highways, we go 110. It's 100 out here, so you guys go whatever the frig you want to go. That's a, I'm crying, it's at night time, I just, I don't even see lights, I just see red streaks going by me. I'm, I'm crying, <laughs> you know. There is the odd person that slow down, slows down to, to take a look to see what I look like. You know those people, they look at you, they're driving my, what's your problem? Welcome back to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where you can call in 519-661-3600 if you're bearing the heat out there today, or write us, uh, email us rather, at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Uh, highway speed limits came up a lot lately. Apparently 70% of Ontarians say they want photo radar, according to the past president of Canada's Safety Council, uh, who I heard uh, in the, in the uh, electronic media last week. I'm not even sure what station I was listening to. Um, but some interesting issues about photo radar. You know, everybody thinks that it's, it would solve some of the carnage on our highways by slowing people down and getting people to get closer to the speed limit. Well, for me, that never really made sense, which I'll explain shortly, but it seems that there are some studies out there that support my point of view that uh, slowing people down increases accidents. It does not decrease them and fatalities as well. But what I did find was in National Post July 5th, there was uh, a, a, an article slash editorial called Photo Radar Isn't the Answer by John Turley Ewart. And he talks about... Um, Yes, we've had more fatalities this year than last. In Ontario, there's been 191 fatalities up to July 5th, at least, compared to 153 during the same period last day. You know, when I look at numbers like that, um, just for a partial year period fatalities in Ontario on our highways, and then you compare them to the total deaths of Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan over five years, uh, those deaths would amount to about four days' worth of traffic fatalities in Ontario. But nevertheless, uh, the, the article in, uh, in the National Post talks about how uh, Ontario's original photo radar exper experiment, quote, was politically unpopular, which is why it was cancelled in 95 by Mike Harris's conservative government. Um, Interestingly, both the province's governing liberals and opposition conservatives learned from that, which is why neither has been willing to run, you know, hop on the photo radar bandwagon. And apparently Dalton McGinty has already made it clear he's not going that direction. He's going to try and find other ways to deter speeding. And, of course, the editorial 
agrees that that is the right, right approach because photoradar is not the way to stop fi fatal highway accidents. And what they cite here in terms of their evidence is, uh, you know, 12 years have gone by since Ontarians had uh, photoradar. But British Columbia, which dumped photoradar in only in 2001, and Alberta, which still uses it, offer very timely evidence. In these jurisdictions, uh, photoradar failed to end the statistical carnage on their roads and highways. They also say that setting it up is very expensive, although I, I saw a contrary claim to that, which I'll get to in a moment. But uh, in, in this case, anyway, they talk about um, in, when BC launched its initiative in 96, the total project was $60 million. So to recover an outlay like that, you've got to you know, give a lot of people a lot of tickets to recover that $60 million bucks. So there's an incentive to uh, not only have speeders, but to recover your money that way. And they showed that a breakdown of driving fatalities in Ontario in 2004, 1,208 deaths that year, only 84 of them were attributed to what they would consider illegal speeding, with another 81 attributed to driving too fast for the prevailing road conditions. In other words, the other 81 were still probably within the legal limit, but driving too fast because it was snowy or rainy or foggy or whatever. And what they do find is, uh, according to the U.S. National Highway Traf Traffic Safety Admin, uh, in a very broad study, that 80% of all police-reported car crashes were caused by driver distractions. Of course, that's the big thing today, you know. It's all cell phones, according to most people, which is, which is a, an issue, no doubt. But uh, that's the main thing, is driver distraction, which can be caused by just about anything. But uh, here, between 1973, when Canadian road fatalities peaked at 6,706, can you imagine? And 2004, when they dropped to 2,775, that's a 59% drop. Now, what the government says the reason for this is, is that uh, they, they introduced, of course, drinking and driving laws in 1969. wasn't a big issue until then, believe it or not. You would just get ticketed, and people would drive and drunk all over the place, even more than they were today, are today. And, of course, safety standards and mandatory seatbelt usage and improvements in airbags and technology, all of these things helped reduce uh, fatalities. In Germany, though, here's the one you always hear about Germany and the Autobahn. Apparently, they, their reduction in fatalities was even greater. Uh, statistics collected by Germany's Federal Highway Research Institute shows that the country, with its famed Autobahn, and they have no speed limit there on large stretches of it, has a better record of reducing road fatalities in Canada. Between 70, 1970 and 2005, deaths as a result of car accidents dropped by 72%. And they say that's because, in addition to the things Canada is doing, they're doing those too, but also they engineer their highways and roads to be a little more forgiving of driver error, so that if you go off the road a bit, it kind of pushes you back and off. And uh, just in that context, uh, I have an uncle who actually... Uh, passed away on the Autobahn of a heart attack and did not get involved in a car accident. He was able to pull over and pull off, and uh, they found him there, but he didn't cause an accident, and somehow it was still safe for the rest of the drivers. So there's a little personal touch. Now, on the other side of the scale, uh, I was listening on the radio last week. A number of the stations are all talking about everyone wanting uh, photo radar, 70% uh, say it works. And, you know, when somebody says something works, always ask the question, at what? Because generally, look at the goal, and usually that's as far as it goes. Yes, photo radar works at slowing down traffic. It does. But it also works at increasing fatality rates. And the reason of this is, is uh, it's interesting. Now, 
apparently, toward the end of uh, the Harris regime, and I don't have this piece in front of me, unfortunately, but I was aware of it, and someone else brought it to my attention again when they were talking on the radio. But uh, they put out a study, and uh, I guess the only paper that really ever reported on it at some time was the Toronto Star. And they did, a, they did it on photoradar, and they found out that where photoradar was in use, speeds did decrease, but the fatality rate skyrocketed because of rear-end collisions, which sounds to me kind of logical. And they, they observed the same results at traffic lights using photo cameras at the intersection. And what would happen psychologically is if somebody would approach one of these areas, you know, they'd suddenly slow down, hit on their brakes, or they think they can't get through the light on the yellow, so they slam the brake on, and the guy behind them hits them. Okay, and that's simply what happens. Now, you know, basically the way I look at it is that speed does not kill. It, it does not kill. They tell you it does, but if, you know, of course, if you're in a, if you collide with something at a high speed, you could be killed. But speed alone, if speed alone killed everyone who ever flew in a jet plane, wouldn't survive the journey. Collisions is what kill, of course. And so the key is to reduce congestion on our highways, and the greater, you know, the greater probability of collisions comes to the proximity that you have to other vehicles on the road. So to me, higher speed limits are a logical way to reduce carnage on the road. If you're driving safely, you can't be distracted and going back and forth and playing with your uh, cell phone and stuff like that. But just taking it on, on, on its basic level. For example, suppose I drive from London to Toronto in one and a half hours instead of two hours. Now, what does that mean? It means I'm on the road for 25% less time. I'm literally not there. I'm not an object to be hit. On the other hand, if I slow down and take three hours to get to Toronto, I'm on the road for 33% longer, and that increases my odds of being in an accident by either my being more tired because I'm driving longer, because of greater traffic density because everyone's going slower and being more in proximity to each other on the road all at one time. And you know, there's a natural factor in this as well. You know, everybody says, oh, the, the speed limit is uh, 100, but everybody's going faster. Uh, you know, the fellow, uh, it was Kevin McGrath in the opening clip who said, uh, you know, he lives in Edmonton where the speed is 110, and they drive 110. You come here, it's 100, and everybody goes really faster. I observed the same thing when I used to drive through the States, uh, where the speed limits were set quite high. Everyone observed them. When they were set a little too low, 55 miles an hour here and there, you'd see people speeding far more often and far higher sometimes than you would expect them to. Now, of course, part of the reason is the way the roads are built. Uh, many of you might not remember when the 401 and 400 series were built. They were, they were graded for 70 miles an hour, which, of course, uh, is around 110, 120-ish in there. Uh, which is really the natural speed of the highway. And, and, you know, that's what taxpayers paid for. They were promised this 70-mile-an-hour course to get them from wherever to Toronto and back and forth much quicker than what they were used to. So nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, so, so many other issues with cameras. They only make a technical judgment. There are many people who get a ticket uh, with, high, with uh, photo radar. You, you don't even have to drive. You can be sitting at home and uh, have your car parked in the garage and you get a ticket in the mail because some machine read somebody's license the wrong way. So, you know, it's not that issue or that uh, straight an issue in any case that uh, speed kills and that uh, uh, slowing everyone down will solve the problem. It just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, about 10%, a little under 10% of tickets are disputed. So that's a lot of tickets, you know. That's... Uh, 
And now here in Ontario, I think, uh, uh, somebody quoted that uh, they were producing $16 million revenue and the system only cost 700000 Well, no, not the system. Operating costs, maybe, but not the system. So, uh, you know, and of course it decreases in the, the belief that there should be fewer police on the roads actually uh, watching for things of that nature. So uh, that's my take on the whole uh, photo radar and, and speed limits. I think speed limits should be actually raised a little bit. I think you'd see a little more sense on the roads. And uh, I know right now they're working on the 401 being uh, six lanes all the way from basically Montreal to Windsor, which will help the congestion a little bit. Uh, that's it for now. We're going to come back right after this next break uh, with a few more follow-ups on issues that we've covered on past shows. But first, this little thought and a smile. I got to tell you, I'm a good driver. I'm probably one of the best drivers you ever see. Great driver. In fact, I drive so well, I figure, hey, I'll go a little faster than everybody else. <laughs> How do they treat a good driver like me? What do they do? Took my driver's license. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have a license, which means now I have to be, like, really careful when I drive. People who define themselves in America now solely through agitation. They have no life except yours. So they presume to get involved. And presumption begat advocacy, and advocacy begat political correctness. And political correctness is just inverted McCarthyism. And believe me, I don't throw the word McCarthy throw the word McCarthyism around lightly, because I just saw St. Elmo's fire again on TV the other night, and I was reminded how truly god-awful he was in that. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. My name's Bob Metz, and you can call in 519-661-3600, or write us by email, justrightchrw at gmail. Dot com. Uh, again, a couple of stories I would, had been working on on past shows and never really got to them. I've got a few of them because, uh, of course, we get guests from time to time and that pushes another issue back. But most of these issues don't really date themselves, at least the ones that I try to choose for the show. And uh, you may recall there was some time ago I had uh, guest uh, John Thompson from the McKenzie Institute. It was on May 31st, I believe, uh, talking about uh, terrorism in the world and uh, World War III, etc., etc. But interestingly enough, uh, having now, John actually believed that we're sort of in the start of World War III, and you could almost call it that because there are many fronts on which a, a common kind of war is being fought. And uh, but what was interesting is that the uh, London Free Press on July 12th ran an article with the headline, World War III, question mark, many Canadians fear Third World War looms by Terry Pedwell, CP uh, reporter. Now, according to a ca Canadian press decimal research survey, 46% of respondents to an online poll, of course, that's a little bit sub suspect there, but nevertheless, they thought there'd be another world war within the next 50 years. 
Almost one in four, 25%, think it will happen in less than 100 years, while 13% thought it would take longer. 17% said it would never happen. You know, I often wonder if you had asked that question of the average American, Japanese, German, or whoever, just in the months before World War II, whether they thought that would ever happen, what kind of results you might have um, gotten. But uh, Canadian historian Michael Bliss says that if a third world war were to take place, it would involve nuclear bombs and start in one of the world's hot spots. We'll be lucky if nuclear weapons aren't used in the next 20 years in the Middle East, says Bliss. Now, I find it interesting that people think that in order to have a, quote, World War III or a world war of any sort, you have to have these weapons of mass destruction, that without them you don't really have a bona fide war. A lot of the weapons that we use that target things very directly and stuff are, can be just as deadly. And we didn't, you know, use that many. Two nuclear weapons have been used uh, basically to end the last war, as people might argue. But uh, if you're waiting for a nuclear weapon to signify the beginning of a war, you're going to be way behind the fact. By the time a nuclear weapon is dropped, we're probably already at it in many ways. I imagine many people who lived through the last few world wars who were not on the front and did not and were not in military service may not really have been aware of it in their day-to-day -day life other than of course the news reports and and such which would not have been at that time as intensive as it is today of course Vietnam was the war that uh, they said was ended because of the television camera being there right on the front lines but um, what I found interesting was that whereas the Canadian public in general seems to be rather optimistic about either a war never happening or it won't happen for 50 years, that's a pretty long time, a lot can happen in 50 years, um, but the more one is an expert or closer to being an expert, like, uh, like Michael Bliss that I just quoted here, uh, the shorter the time is involved where they seem to expect a world war. And In fact, my May 31st guest, John, thought himself that uh, we're already in it now. It's just a lot of people haven't woken up to it. So uh, I just think it's, uh, it's just one of those odd uh, debates that will go on for quite some time. Uh, another subject, uh, follow-up again, uh, going away from prospects of war, which we don't really like to talk about too much if we can avoid it, uh, the monarchy. I did a show on Canada Day about the monarchy and uh, talked about how the monarchy... Uh, might have been surprising. I wouldn't support a monarchy blindly, but the one we have is called a constitutional monarchy, and uh, I talked about it as a form of of uh, the state, of government, uh, comparing it a little bit to uh, a republic, and I su my suggestion was that both forms are quite compatible with uh, a government that could defend individual rights or violate them. I mean, there's no guarantee. It's always up to the people to make that guarantee. But there was a debate in the free press between Michael Corrin and Christina Blizzard. Uh, the monarchy, royal rumble, po point-counterpoint it was, and uh, you know I think the column should have been called Missing the Point because uh, when I read it, again, they made the biggest single mistake that I was the first thing I pointed out in my uh, opinion on the monarchy. And then that's that they were talking about the royal family and not the institution of the monarchy itself. Um, yeah, you can, you know, complain and bitch about the royal family all you want. They're they're sometimes laughable, but I think a lot of people don't realize what they actually go through. I've I have watched some documentaries 
uh, both on the Queen and on other members of the family, uh, in, of course, presenting them in a more positive light in what they do. And I'll tell you, most of you wouldn't want their jobs uh, for just about anything. You, you'd have to give up a lot of your freedoms to be in their situation, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, my argument was that neither a republic or a constitutional monarchy, which ironically was a term not even mentioned in their debate, is any guarantee of anything, you know, that both are compatible. So the same thing happened, you know, with the people who there was a sampling of letters to the editor again that said the same thing and were sort of like the letters that were written about Tom Harris, everybody uh, complaining about their own personal thing and not really getting to the point. So, again, another reason why I'm enjoying doing this show and will continue to do this show, hopefully for many weeks and a uh, long time to come. But that's it for today. I am told by Ira over there that I've got to wrap it up. Time is up. We must be running near the noon hour. And what's the temperature out there by now? Must be hitting well into the 30s by now. So, until next week, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Be right, stay right, do right. Act right and think right. And we'll see you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I wrote a love poem. Can I try on you guys? A little change of mood? Yeah? Can we dim the uh, lights a little bit? Perfect. <laughs> A little music, a little background music. Is there a band here somewhere or something? Yeah, that's nice, right? If you ever had your heart broken or uh, whatever. There's a love poem. It's called, Are You Getting Prettier or Am I Just Lowering My Standards? I looked at my watch. It was a quarter to two. I looked at your face and I thought, hmm, she'll do. <laughs> the end.